Hi, this is the Air Dimble Shag, and I've never been on the Quarter Bin podcast. <laughs> This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 131st episode of The Quarterbin, we're looking at Doctor Who 8 from Marvel Comics, cover dated May 1985. Coverage of Doctor Who here on the show is part of the February event, during which all the shows on the network are turning their attention towards the Doctor. But first, a little feedback. On episode 130, we talked about one of my financial mentors, Uncle Scrooge. And in his promotion for the episode, guest Luke Giaconetti referred to us as, that's right, two podcasters for a quarter. Even Scrooge would be happy with that deal. Now, Dr. Ange pointed out the obvious. Scrooge would run the Dime Box podcast. <laughs> Sir... Sir Martin of Grey said nice things about the episode and also revealed more about his mysterious past in the publishing world. Fab episode takes me right back to my childhood. Years later, I was working for European Disney Comics company Egmont. Never met Scrooge McDuck, though. Gord Tolton says it was a great show. The Ducks, and especially Scrooge, have always seemed like something set aside from the Disney milieu. Almost too cool to be seen with the likes of Mickey and Goofy. That in no small way is due to Carl Barks, who made profiteering and vulture capitalism cool. And though I joke, the uncle is the engineer behind the Marvel takeover and the successful movie Universe. The one where those bland blunderers in blue who can't count the five are treated in the manner they well deserve. And where a jewel-encrusted glove can only have come from the bottom of a money bin. Long live do, I mean, Scrooge. Say, they both have double O's in their spelling. Huh. I have found a conspiracy. Could the nephews be Scrooge bots? Note to self, Gord may know too much. Consider proposing him for elimination. Scott Rowland said, You are way tougher than the toughies, smarter than the smarties, and you made it square. Old School Ross commended Luke for the great job he did on the episode. Not sure where you found the energy with four kids, but you quacked up my Monday morning commute. And we heard from actual Disney comic book artist, John Roman Picula, who I apologize to for destroying his Dutch name. I really enjoyed the episode. Your love for Carl Bark's work is tangible. Most of John Roman's work has featured Mickey and or Donald, but he has drawn some Scrooge over the years. So very good to hear from you, friend. Karen, from between the pages where food and pop culture meet, followed up with an obvious question to Sir Martin, referencing an email I read a minute or two ago. 
Is there a dream job in comics you haven't had? I never knew you used to work for Egmont. Martin explained that Egmont owned London Editions, where he worked. I worked across all age groups, so I edited Superman, My Little Pony, Duckula, Bugs Bunny, Polly Pocket, Werebears. Not all at once, though. Karen then reminded me that it was her suggestion that I cover a funny book, but when I made that request, I never imagined. You'd grab a giant-sized Uncle Scrooge comic with Carl Barks, Don Rosa, Scrooge, Donald, the Nephews, the Beagle Boys, and Magica. A great episode about a great comic. She then went on to demonstrate a deep knowledge of all things Duck and started quite a twip-versation. I was really happy that you two talked about Indux. It is the best info source about Disney comics, and unfortunately, not many people in the U.S. seem to know about it. Both of you talked about Carl Barks' visual storytelling. I've often thought that the reason he uses so many visual gags is because it came from Disney animation. And did you know that Don Rosa hid a tribute to Carl Barks in most of his covers and splash pages? Look for the letters D-U-C-K, dedicated to Uncle Carl from Kino. Kino being Don Rosa's first name. Now, I commented that more people should definitely use Indux, especially because it had such a great N-A-M-E. Luke commented that he did know about the duck that Rosa hides in his work, which I did not know, but it totally slipped Luke's mind. And from Mike, from Comics in the Golden Age, I just wanted to say how much I loved the Uncle Scrooge episode. I'm a huge fan of both Carl Barks and Don Rosa, I've met Don Rosa a few times, and my oldest daughter came with me to get sketches in the front of our Fanagraphics books, because she also enjoyed reading them. I'd heard Rosa can be a bit curmudgeonly at times, but he was super nice to my daughter, so of course I think the world of him. I'd love to see more duck books covered in the future on your network. We also heard from Slangword Scott who gave us some information about Gladstone comics. Fun episode, I was brought to Banks and Rosa fandom by Gladstone. FYI, they weren't owned by Steve Jeppe. His Gemstone comics picked up the license after Gladstone folded. The Gemstone books were of similar quality, though, as I think they had the same editorial team. Luke responded to that, thanking him for the clarification and saying that he always gets Gladstone and Gemstone confused. Karen jumped back into the conversation here, saying that she had completely forgotten that Gemstone once published Disney books. Didn't many of their titles have thicker covers and cost $5 or more? If I remember correctly, I didn't purchase many of their comics because of that cover price. And Slangword Scott replied that she was right. Yes, the second version of Gladstone introduced prestige format versions of Scrooge and Walt Disney comics and stories and then Gemstone continued that format. On a per-page basis, it was a good deal, but I'm sure that price point kept a lot of folks away. Scott also said that he'd love a regular Barks, Rosa, Yippers, Van Horn-oriented Ducks podcast. Just saying. Karen added that she would as well, as did Dan Cunningham. Done well, I'd certainly be on board for that. There's a lot of great history to explore 
even beyond the ducks. And Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower One from the Huntress podcast, said it was a great episode with a great guest. I was laughing along with you both. I couldn't see the art and visual gags, but you both expressed things so well my imagination filled in the rest. Well done. Now, Laurel also gets an extra shout-out for finding some quarter bins. And even though she failed this podcast at first by picking up issues of (sighs) Fantastic Four, she saw the error of her ways and returned to the store later to nab a bright, shiny copy, because they are all bright and shiny, of Doom 2099, Number one, look what I found, she tweeted. Getting out Quarter Bin Podcast episode 49 now. I love it. Redemption, Laurel. Redemption. That last episode received social media love from the people already mentioned above, as well as Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Kyle Benning, Sir I Was Joe, Gene Hendricks from The Hammer Strikes, Doc Strange, My Stevie G, Siskoid, The Nexus of All Realities, Paul Spataro and Scott Gardner for Back to the Bins, Good One, Pat Sampson, Christopher J. Warden, Patrick Delmore from Next Generation's First Generation, Mike Peacock from Justice's First Dawn, Matt McKeegan, Logan Garrett, and Vinny Gianfridi III. Thanks to everybody for that wonderful feedback. I'm very gratified by the quantity and quality of responses that Luke and I and Scrooge generated. Really appreciate that. Well, we have to take a break here, because when we come back, I'm going to be joined by a guest. And we've got an issue of Doctor Who to talk about. Are you a fan of Doctor Who? How about comics? If you're a fan of both, then Doctor Who Panel to Panel is for you. This podcast looks in-depth into the long history of Doctor Who comics, from the 1960s kid-friendly strips to today's present comics from Titan Comics and Doctor Who Magazine. I review stories old and new, featuring classic doctors like Tom Baker and John Pertwee, to the 12th Doctor himself, Peter Capaldi. I also interview the creators behind the stories, from authors such as Paul Carnell, to artists like John Ridgway and Lee Sullivan. I also talk to production people such as Titan Comics editor Andrew James and Doctor Who Magazine editor Tom Spilsbury about their career and work on these great comics. Check out Doctor Who Panel to Panel on iTunes, Facebook, and download episodes direct from DoctorWhoComics.com. mean me and my oversized ego. I mean, we have a guest. A guest who once complained loudly and with cursing that he'd never been on the Quarterbin podcast. And we fixed that It took years. That, that one time and somehow he keeps coming back. <laughs> like a bad, what's it, like a bad penny, like a bad quarter. I, I don't know. And he's here today because yes, he's a big fan of Doctor Who. It's Shag. 
The Irredeemable Shag. Thank you very much. I am excited to be here, Alan. Thank you so much for having me. Well, welcome back to the Quarterman. You keep inviting me for my favorite stuff. You've had me on board for Alpha Flight. You've had me on board for Ultraverse. You've had me on board for Doctor Who. Now this is so exciting. Next time you can invite me for my favorite thing, the Micronauts, and then maybe my favorite thing, Star Wars, and my other favorite thing, Star Trek. And uh, I'll be, you know, and the other thing is they're all comics, which are my favorite things. So this is perfect. (laughs) Now, you are a longtime, well-known fan of the crazy person in the blue box. Now, this is a comic book show, as you so eloquently pointed out. So what is your history with any of the various iterations and versions of Doctor Who comics? Well, these two things came together for me perfectly at the right time because I became a Doctor Who fan in 1983. That's when I discovered the show. I I discovered it like no one had noticed it before. (laughs) Anyway, I, I became a fan of the show. And that was the same year I became an avid comic collector. Then 1984, uh, somewhere along there, I stumbled across a back issue of Marvel Premiere. And back in 1980, Marvel Premiere had reprinted four issues. Uh, well, they were really more, it was four issues of Doctor Who they did, but it was more strips than that because you know, each issue has multiple strips. I picked up the last issue, number 60, had this great painting cover. Anyway, I read this thing until it was falling apart. Taste that tastes great together. And, and I, I still own that exact issue. So, I mean, it's the cover looks like hell, but it, I, I loved it so much. And it was so different than compared to like regular comics because, you know, as you've, as you've read some of these, they don't quite feel like a regular Marvel comic. It's a little bit comic book hero. It's a little bit Doctor Who. It's a little bit 2000 AD, kind of like all brought together in this weird mix. And it, again, it hit me at just the right time. So I bought I bought that issue 60, read it over and over and over. And then right after that, I, I bought it. They launched the ongoing Marvel series of Doctor Who. It was what a wonderful world. I discovered comic book stores because this was a direct to comic book store only thing. You couldn't find this on the newsstand. And so I, it was, it all came together very well for me. So I bought all those. And then years later, I, I kept going with IDW and Titan and they're still buying Doctor Who comics today. Well, we are looking at Doctor Who number eight, which had a cover price of $1.50, meaning I acquired this comic from one of the quarter bin sales at the now defunct in the ballpark at a very handy 83.3% discount off that original <laughs> price. Although technically... I didn't pay for it all, at all, <gasps> and it's, strictly speaking, not in my collection. What? I'm, I'm pretty sure that M was the one who purchased this one for a bright, shiny corner, but <laughs> I found it at my house. I think that's close enough. Possession's nine-tenths of the law, I'm right? just saying, so I counted it. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so you saved 100% on this See? one, actually. It's a win-win. That's awesome. And by, by reflection, I paid full price, and I, I have bought it, I think, three more times in reprint form. So, so on hmm. average, that's about a quarter. I guess so. Like, mm. I don't know that's how math works, but okay. <laughs> don't tell Stella. That's our main rule about the math. Okay. Don't worry. This is about Doctor Who. She's not oh, listening. Fair enough. <laughs> now, the cover by Dave Gibbons Woo-hoo! shows the Tom Baker version of the Doctor delivering a consequence to... Another Tom Baker version of the Doctor. (laughs) And we're promised two tales in this issue, The Collector and Dreamers of Death. And there's also a back cover. Unbelievable. Also by Gibbons showing the Doctor and his comic book companion Sharon, both in spacesuits. And in the background, you've got a close-up of Tom Baker's face with his eyes closed. 
and he is dreaming. So what do you think of either or both of these spoilers? Really good covers. <laughs> well, I absolutely love the front cover. The first of all, by the way, this was done on the Baxter paper stuff, you know. So this is the the higher quality. Right. The, the color. This thing's thirty years old. Whatever, thirty five years old. The colors still pop. Yep. It's bright. It's vibrant. You know, it's very comic booky action. The Doctor is delivering a significant consequence that you would never see Tom Baker do. Maybe Duggan, not Tom Baker. So Tom Baker is literally clocking himself, and they both look great. And the scarf looks gorgeous. I love the front cover. Back cover. Not as in love with. Uh, I do like the blue serpent in the background of the Doctor yeah. sleeping, which is representative. I do think it's funny to see him in the spacesuit with the scarf, which is hilarious. <laughs> but there's there's just something about the back cover which doesn't grab me as much. The, the front cover is dramatic. It's surprising, you said, in, in a number of ways. And attention-getting. I, th- I think the back one's more of a poster shot. Yeah. It, it's a nice piece of art. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be a great cover for the issue. Some things are coming together in my head here. And I never even thought about it till this moment. So the back cover is, as you said, you described this image. It's not an ad. So then I started flipping through this. Did you notice there's not a single ad in here that's not a Marvel House ad? Not one. Hmm. I didn't notice that till this moment. Interesting. Why wouldn't they sell the ad? Comic book distribution in stores was so small at this point. Maybe they didn't think they could get enough. You know, no, no one's like, I'm not going to pay for a 10,000 person dist- distribution or whatever. Interesting. We have, as we said, we do have a lot of content in here. So we do. It is, it is you know, 28 out of 32 pages of, of comic book content. So Still, I can't imagine uh, Jim Shooter letting them not sell ads. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say I use the synopses at DoctorWhoGuide.com as jumping off points for the summaries that we'll use in this episode. Lazy! Exactly. It's not stealing if you say where you stole it from. <laughs> academics. Fair enough. For uh, clarification, both of these stories feature the Tom Baker version of the Doctor, and the companion is an African-American woman named Sharon. So Sharon Davies, I think. Now you said both of these stories. There is a third, oh, you know. Well, we'll get to that. We will All right. Get to that. Since you're yep. quoting websites, I do have to pimp. <laughs> Sorry alteredvistas.co.uk which is this amazing website which is all dedicated to Doctor Who comic stuff. If, if you need a resource for Doctor Who comic book oh, stuff, no. go to alteredvistas.co.uk. Just be prepared to spend some time there. Mm-hmm. So. Now you are much more familiar with the extended Hooniverse yes, sir. than I am. So does Sharon ever show up in any audio dramas or novels that you know of or was she strictly a comic book, comic strip companion? She was strictly a comic book companion, or comic strip companion, really, because this is a reprint of the comic strips. Right. She was strictly a comic strip uh, a companion who appeared um, a little ways into the Tom Baker run. For the reprint's sake, it worked out well where she actually, her first comic book appearance for the reprints was in Doctor Who number one. And she starts off as a teenage girl, and somewhere along the line, she gets aged up to adulthood. Yeah, there's a uh, reference to that I was going to ask. Yep. Uh, I don't remember the specifics of it, but something happens where she's like, hey, I'm an adult now. It was like psh, some, you know, Doctor Who magic. I don't think she's appearing anywhere else. And the only reason I'm, I'm hemming and hawing about it is because right now, Big Finish has well, just they are announced. They're mining everything, it seems like. Yeah, well, they're mining the comic strips. They're actually adapting some of the comic strips into adventures and, and freely acknowledging that they're a bit wonky and crazy right. and not exactly like the, uh, the, the TV series. I don't know how far they're going. So I don't know if Sharon will actually appear or if they're just doing like Iron Legion, which is kind of the, the big one most people read. So even if the answer is no right now, 
that, that might not be the case in a couple of years. Absolutely. So our first story, The Collector, was written by Steve Moore with art by Dave Gibbons. This eight-page story appeared in Doctor Who Weekly number 46, published in the UK in November 1980. And we start with the TARDIS materializing in Black Castle. And in spite of the randomizer, the Doctor has successfully returned Sharon to her hometown, but she isn't sure she wants to return now that she's grown up. See, that was my question. There you go. <laughs> but the decision is taken out of their hands when the three of them, I'm counting canine, are TARDIS-napped by a <laughs> plasmatic force field. hate it when that happens. They walk through a Roman room and a Revolution-era room until they're greeted by a greenish alien anthropologist, Varan Tak, who's been stranded in our asteroid belt for centuries. And he's been dealing with his boredom by removing samples of human civilizations from the planet, keeping them in time stasis capsules while awaiting rescue. The doctor can fix things and allow Tack to teleport to Earth so he'll have company, but learns too late why the ship won't let him go. The artificial intelligence which run the ship has fallen in love with him. She was trying to protect him because our polluted atmosphere would instantly kill him. But with a little help from K-9, Tack has already transported and has already died angering the AI very much because she loved him, after all. Fortunately, the doctor is able to correct his mistake, and he does so in exchange for a promise that Tack will stop borrowing Earthlings. He goes back a few minutes, interrupting himself via consequences, the scene from (laughs) the cover, and destroying the teleport mechanisms of the future in which Tack died ceases to exist and he must now just await rescue. The end. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about each each story that we've got. But first, just as a comic book story, how do you like this one? How was this as an eight-page sci-fi comic book story? I think it's lots of fun. I, I, I do think that there were probably more words in your recap than there's actually on the pages <laughs> in those eight pages. But... <laughs> No, it's it's super fun. I I really enjoy the goofiness of it. Like you know, it's visually works well. You see that as you said, you see them go through these various different rooms, and their costumes change. So they're wearing togas, and yet the doctor's scarf is still there, which is funny. You get the action of a, a you know at least one punch. So you do get some consequence going on there. And these were originally black and white. Is that correct? That is correct. Like I said the color is pretty stunning, actually. This is the first time anyone saw it colored. Yeah. yeah. So. And uh, it's interesting. Now, I, I mentioned I own this thing in many different formats. It's embarrassing how many times I own this. I, I have scans of the original black and white. I've got this reprint. I've got uh, IDW's reprint of single issues. I, I have the giant Dave Gibbons collection as well. The only reason I bring that up is because those uh, IDW recolored all of these. But as I was comparing the two, I noticed they really followed this as a color guide, though. Oh, wow. Now, while they may have changed a few colors here or there, you know, a lot of the same things stuck with it. You know, Sharon's suit is yellow and mm-hmm. the, the mothership is purple and the guy is green. And I mean, they really use this as a guide. So I got to think that this, you know, has kind of got a, a place in a lot of people's hearts, uh, this version, of co- this colored version. Maybe it's just me. Could you hear Tom Baker's voice in your head with this dialogue? Uh, yeah, I think so. I really could. I, I thought, it, it, especially this story, even more than the other one, uh, I really feel like they captured Tom Baker's voice in this one. I was very impressed. 
when you've only got eight pages, that can be tough for an action strip. I mean, there's a mm -hmm. lot of work to be done. Oh, yeah. A limited amount of pages, though they do squeeze a lot of panels into the pages. The, so I, th I think it succeeds on that. You know, we, you know, in, in a longer story, it would be fun to see them spend more time in those different eras and maybe, you know, piecing the mystery together as opposed to just wandering through. You know, we say it as a joke, but it, it has that grain of truth that this would be at least a, a three-issue arc today, if, if not longer. <laughs> right? yeah, we'd, yeah. we'd spend at least an issue in Rome and then an issue in the Revel, and then we'd get to this, this story. Is there, you know, figuring out the mystery or something? Absolutely. Yeah. Marty Pascal, I heard him one time on an episode of Word Balloon talking about writing stories and how uh, for tryouts, when writers were just getting started, the way to try out a writer is you give them an eight page story yeah. because it's actually easier to write a 22 page story. When you have all this space to, to let it unfold, it's harder to be brief. As, as I frequently am on your show, it's difficult <laughs> for me to be brief. But you've got to get I mean, the, the, the classic beginning, middle and end. Mm -hmm. The motivations and character arcs and conflicts, that resolution. There's a lot exactly. to do. There's a lot mm -hmm. to do. I liked the motivation of this villain, that he was bored. Yep. That's just a nice, it's a nice change of pace. I, I did find one thing that didn't make sense to me in the story, um, which was they had been stranded for 2,000 years, and yet she, the pollution had only happened in the last couple years. So why didn't she let him travel to Earth for like the first fifteen hundred years? So well, I, you didn't mention she's called the mother mothership, which is brilliant. I love that gag. Almost pushing forty years ago from when this was originally mm -hmm. uh, written, the idea of the AI falling in love with its creator—that's a nice touch. We've seen that yep. a lot since then. Absolutely, this would have been one of the earlier versions of that story. Well, speaking of those kinds of tropes, um, you asked me if this makes a good comic book story. Well, I, I wanted to answer another question, which is, does this make a good Doctor Who story? Yes, that's the second. That's the second question. Well, you mentioned it with the computer, so that that got me thinking about it. Is that you know one of the tropes of Doctor Who is that the, there's an evil robot that at least she starts off thinking they're evil, right. but by the end you feel sympathetic for that for that robot. That's a very common Doctor Who trope in the 70s. So th I thought that fit really well with the Doctor Who's themes. Right out of the gate, they're trying to get the companion home, and something yeah. goes wrong. Yeah. I mean, that was that was the entire Hartnell era, yeah, you know. The, and it, the, the, the TARDIS doesn't always get to where the Doctor wants it to get to. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And, and specifically here, you can tell this is season 17 uh, because of when it was published originally in 1980, but, uh, 79, 80, but also the randomizer because that's when him and Romana were on the run oh, from right. the Black Guardian. They had the randomizer. Mm -hmm. The Sonic Screwdriver's in the story, which is great. It's very, it doesn't look quite like the Sonic Screwdriver, but that's okay. Um, it's very useful, but it doesn't solve everything, which is great. It just basically opens a door. It There's also looks like a little electronic screwdriver. <laughs> it does. It really does. You know, as I understand it, Dave Givens wasn't a huge you know, follower of Doctor Who, so maybe he just drew what he thought he needed to draw. I don't know. <laughs> Um, I, the thing that I loved is really, really Doctor Who-esque is they visit those different time periods in those rooms. One of the things, you know, obviously every time they showed a spaceship, the set would wobble, right? But one of the things they did exceptionally well was do period pieces sure. yep. because they had so much of this stuff in storage from all the various dramas they had produced over the years. So they had an ancient Rome set. They had an 18th century set. They right. just pull it out. <laughs> so it was very fitting for Doctor Who to go traipsing through there. I liked that. Now, there's one thing listeners are just dying to know if we look at this this purple ai the mothership mm -hmm. i think she's kind of attractive what do you think do i need to say it 
So, you know, she's 2,000 years old at least, so at least I'm not crossing any age boundaries. Yes, she's hot. She's She is a sexy robot. <laughs> she would uh, make uh, what mechanique. Is that what uh, the, the right. one from Metropolis or whatever? I mean, in fact, that first pose looks like it's supposed to be a little representative of that Metropolis. Thank you. Yeah. So the other big thing in here, the big, big Doctor Who trope is there's a giant, big, fat time paradox, which makes no sense. Yeah. Where the Doctor goes and, you know, delivers his consequence to himself and thereby changes all of history, which therefore they would have never gone there. It's this huge, you know, uh, I am my own grandfather kind of uh, paradox. And so the changes they made, they they would have never made. So it's a paradox. And it's very similar to the Day of the Daleks, which was a Pertwee story, which is where these bad guys come back in time to stop something from happening. Well, they actually are trying to stop something they're involved with. So, it, again, it's a paradox. They're, they're, they're stopping something they couldn't have stopped. So. I do like that the time travel aspect is baked into the story, I think, naturally. Although, crossing one's timeline is usually considered a Doctor Who no-no. And I would think punching yourself, that's probably a no-no too, but (laughs) I don't mind. I don't mind. I'm I'm pretty lenient about time travel, as long as they recognize the paradox and are sort of mostly consistent within themselves, so... So does this one bother you then, or the fact Not that they really. just acknowledge it's a paradox really. and that's okay? This is crazy, but we're going to do it anyway. K9 was interesting in this one because yes. he... K9 he, comes to the rescue, of course. Well, the, the nice thing is you don't have to deal with a bunch of his annoying inability to do stuff, because in a comic book, he doesn't have to go, Boom, you know, have right. trouble rolling across gravel pebbles. <laughs> uh, and here he just, he's basically a gun for hire. Doctor says, shoot it, he shoots it. That's all that K9 does in this thing, which is fine. I think that the story, it could have worked as a general sci-fi story. You know, it could have been Adam Strange or some other mm-hmm. generic mystery in space thing. But I do think the Doctor Who elements, uh, again, the look of the sonic screwdriver is a little shaky, but having K-9, the Doctor's own compassion and ability to solve the story without violence, except to himself, that doesn't mm-hmm. count. That does not <laughs> count. <laughs> so I, I, I did think that the, the Doctor Who elements were infused pretty well, I thought, in yeah. the story. And I like the relationship between the Doctor and the and the companion because I was not familiar with this companion at all, but I bought that they had traveled together. Just from the way they related, the conversation, I bought that relationship. Yeah, there's not a lot of development of her, but yeah, they do, you, you can believe they're comfortable together, yeah. You know, I didn't think about this either. So this is eight pages, right? And Doctor Who, weekly, by definition of the name, it means Dave Gibbons was drawing eight pages a week just to keep up with this. Yeah. Wow, that's a lot. Most artists yeah. just crank out a page a week. I mean, I'm sorry, a page a day. A page a day. Right, I'm sorry. Right. They do a page a day, and he was inking his own stuff there, too. Yeah. Well, next up, we have a little bit longer story. 16-pager. Dreamers of Death. <laughs> Which sounds like a Doctor Who serial. It does. It does. This one does. <laughs> This one originally appeared in Doctor Who Weekly 47 and 48, published in the UK in December of 80 and January of 81. And we start on Uniceptor 4, where the Doctor has taken Sharon to visit some old friends, although they might be young friends depending when they landed. At least he has the where correct. This is the when he's a little shaky about. But The latest craze on the planet is dream-sharing a process made possible by professional dreamers using telepathic animals called slinths. And professional dreamer Vernon Allen and his slinth Mickey prepare a poetic dream for the doctor and his friends. But the doctor hears that 
Lord Veith and his own entourage recently died during a shared dream and he takes precautions. The doctor is impressed by how lifelike the dream is, but when it turns violent, who comes to the rescue shag? Canine. Of course. He detects the change in the doctor's life signs, breaks the connection, and the doctor in turn rescues them before the fright causes them all to die of shock. The source of the nightmare turns out to be Mickey, and we learn that the Slinth has been feeding on their fear. As Mickey flees, reports of similar incidents come in, and the doctor realizes that the Slinths are psychic parasites who have now accumulated enough dream power to attack brazenly and openly. And the slints, I'm going to read this slowly because it's a little strange, (laughs) form themselves into a group body in the shape of a huge red devil. That is accurate. This is to generate even more terror. But the doctor realizes that the devil is feeding on electrical energy and he shorts it out using an electrical cable and a fire hose. The slints' powers are broken and the security forces are able to mop them up now that they're back to normal size. In the aftermath, Vernon must start a new life without his slint and Sharon, who must also start a new life now that she's grown up, decides to remain on Uniceptor 4 with him. The end. It's like a shipper special. <laughs> Telling you, it's all wasted material. Stella's not listening. Okay, okay. Even though Sorry. two of her favorite people are here, she's not listening because it's Doctor I Who. I do have to mention one thing. And okay. that the entire story has two people of color in it. Yep. Sharon and Vernon, and they're the ones that end up together. And it's an almost 40-year-old story, and at that time that may have been a bold choice. You know, a modern choice. But you have to note it, and it kind of reminds me of marrying off Martha and Mickey. A little bit. But the, the real thing you've got to give them credit for, though, is that Sharon was the very first African-American. Oh, actually, not African-American. I'm sorry. This is England. Uh, she was the first black companion yes. for Doctor Who uh, in 1979. The show itself wouldn't give us a companion until Mi- a, a black companion until Mickey Smith in 2006. That's pretty far ahead of their time. It yeah. really is. So you got to give them credit for that. But Absolutely. yes, you're right. The, 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 the marrying them off together is, is a little obvious. Yeah. That being said, I do appreciate that the companion is leaving the doctor with a happy ending. And as yep. you know, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> well, you know, back then it wasn't only if only uh, what Katrina and Sarah Kingdom had died at this point, I guess. So we hadn't seen anybody die since the 60s. So, I mean, the happy endings happen for most people. Okay. Okay. I'm thinking you know, they get dropped off at the wrong part of the country. And- that's true. Minor Poor Sarah Poor Sarah like that. Poor yes. Sarah Jane. Poor Sarah <laughs> <laughs> So again, the same basic two questions. First off, how does it work as a comic book story? I mean, there's more room to tell the story. Yep, absolutely. Comparison. I, I think it was used well. As a comic book story, it works well. It's very action-oriented. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's running around, there's explosions, there's shooting, there's the, the giant demon creature. Made out of telepathic dream-stealing. Well, they're basically sloths, is what they basically are, sloths. <laughs> uh, I will tell you the, the recolored version I was telling you about, the Dave Gibbons collection, they actually make a correction there, because the sloths are colored purple, 
And then when they all come together, they're a giant red devil. Well, in in that version, um, the giant devil is purple as well. It matches the same colors as sloths, which makes more sense. Lots of lots of action. So I felt like it worked well as a comic book story. Of course, you know, again, Dave Gibbons knows how to lay out a page. So all of that works well. I, I'm hemming and hawing because I'm going to have a, a, a different answer for the next question. So I'm. <laughs> well, I think there's a more typical villain motivation, you know, lull them into a false sense of security, siphon off some important life force, or yeah, you know, feed on them in some way, feed on the emotions that we're giving them. So there's, you know, that's again, you know, like a classic sci-fi type of thing. Very true. I, I do like going into dreams. That's a trope that I always find kind of cool. Again, it's very well-tread ground in sci-fi. Yeah. But you can still do something with it. The devil creatures where I started. I'm I, I'm not going so far as to say that this is love and monsters where it's, Hey, that's where I it's love not love and monsters. bad until the monster shows up. I love love and monsters. I'll Every def- I defend bit of the it. the first two thirds of it. I'll defend the whole thing. You lo- oh my lance. You, you lose know, me at the Absorbaloft. But You know that was created by a kid, right? Yes. In a I competition. Understand. I understand that. They okay. Could... That was the best one. Anyway. I'm oh, gonna... was snap. It a, was it a random selection? Or... Oh, you're so mean. You're cruel. It's almost like you don't even have children of your own to be oh, kind my to. Lance. Uh-huh. Oh, my Lance. I, I like the story. It sort of lost me there. When the well, I would say the giant devil beast. creature. That's There's The that... giant devil creature, though, is, is very. highlight to you? No, it's not a highlight, but it's a very pulp yes. sci-fi comic book. Like I could see that in an Adam in a in an Adam Strange right. story. So it works from a comic book perspective. How about the Doctor Who perspective? Well, and I'm going to echo some of the comments you made. You talked about the dream thing. I felt like the dream thing works really well from a Doctor Who perspective. I felt like the sleep machine is very resonant, reminiscent of some of the tech that the Doctor would encounter. Like um, there's an episode called Nightmare of Eden where they have this digital zoo that sort of exists inside of a crystal. So that kind of stuff. I felt like the sleep machine worked in that regard. And as you um, said, dreamers of death. Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) Very Tom Baker type of title. Exactly right. Uh, The Devil Creature, I actually feel like that's kind of reminiscent of some 1970s Doctor Who stuff with Pertwee. You know, uh, in The Demons, there was a giant, you know, Azal or whatever his name was, or they fought that guy. Um, Sharon's sudden departure for love is very Doctor Who. Leela leaves in Invasion of Time because suddenly she's in love with Andred. Really? Where'd that come from? Joe Grant is she's in love with uh, Joe Jones, so or Doctor Professor Jones or whatever his name was. So she goes with him. I'm like, really? Where did that come from? That was awful sudden. So the leaving for love was very sudden. That's about where I kind of wrap up on it being like the show because there's a lot of stuff that's not like the show, and that's not bad. I mean, it's it's the same creative team as the other ish, uh, other story, which felt very Doctor Who. This one doesn't feel the Doctor Who. It's a completely different feel, but that's not a bad thing. Like there's this whole thing in here where the Doctor has he has family friends where he just likes to go and hang out and sit on the couch. You know, like I imagine the Trivial Pursuits, you know, five minutes away from coming out if they hadn't done the dreaming thing. Uh, and I like that, but it's not Doctor Who, especially not the Tom Baker era. We already talked about the action, you know, that's that's very comic booky, not super, not Doctor Who-ish. In this one, the military comes along, and they're getting ready to shoot these creatures. You, normally, the Doctor would do what? Jump in and argue with them, right? No, he gives them advice on how better to shoot the creatures. It's like, oh, wow, okay. Um, Tell your men to cease fire. The slints are just absorbing the energy. Old-fashioned projectile weapons, they might work. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> giving giving advice on the proper ordinance to use to destroy the sentient being. Mm, exactly. Not on that doctory. <laughs> Take a look at Pertwee and uh, the Brigadier. That's that conversation never happened. So, <laughs> but 
again, it makes for a fun action story. You take the enjoy, you know, you find your joy in what you can. I do like that when they went into the dreaming that the doctor had a backup plan and had mm-hmm. a tin dog of a backup plan. Nothing yep. wrong with that, depending on good old canine. You said he's the, the designated weapon. He <laughs> said, that right. What, that's pretty much what he's been. He is in these comic strips. Serves his purpose. Serves yep. his purpose. So, yeah. The sloths slash slints, they're okay bad guys, but this definitely could have been, this This could have been a gold key Star Trek story. Could have been any yeah, it, any any particular uh, sci-fi type of franchise. Well, I, I think the gold key comparison is very valid. I think that's fair. So, yeah, absolutely. I So, I, I enjoy the first story better. I don't dislike this one, though. It's just not the standout. Now, as you pointed out, there was a third story. Oh, yeah, there is. Because this issue has four pages of an ongoing feature starring Absalon Dak, Dalek Killer. Woohoo! Now, not bad. It's more of a classic action-type story. Don't, I'm not gonna, we're not going to go into the details. For one thing, it's part of a... It's like one chapter Yeah. in, in the serial, but... Uh, Shag, tell us about Absalon Dak. So what you didn't mention is the creative team. First of all, okay, written by Steve Moore, who we've seen throughout this issue, but art by, check this out, folks, Steve Dillon. Yes, Steve Dillon from Preacher, from Hellblazer, all kinds of stuff. The amazing Steve Dillon. And this is in his early days when he's very, like, 2000 AD type style. The wow. Comic books are kind of like British TV. There are only so many actors. You're exactly right, there yeah. There are only they- so many artists and writers. Exactly right. <laughs> they appear in every property. <laughs> the British invasion was a lot smaller than we actually remember. So, uh, and man, let me tell you, Steve Dillon could draw the heck out of a Dalek too. These Daleks look these great. Daleks look mean. Well, they look mean, but they look legit. Yeah, they look like they the look Daleks right. from the show. Yeah. yeah. Because not every artist could do that. Let me tell you, they're harder to draw than it looks. So, um, a great story. So, the deal with Absalom Dak. So, here's here's what's what's more interesting to talk about with him is his popularity and legacy than this you know four page story or whatever. Yeah. Basically, he's from the future, 26th century. Uh, he's an Earthman who's convicted of 23 charges of murder, pillage, piracy, massacre, and all these other horrible crimes that you can't even mention. So his sentence was to become a Dalek killer, or as they call it, a DK. And he's transported behind enemy lines into the territory controlled by the Daleks. He's got no hope of returning. It's it's a death sentence. And they send him with his trusty chain sword. And his only task is to basically kill as many Daleks as he can before they kill him. It was his great little story that appeared in the Doctor Who Weekly comic books, uh, I'm sorry, magazines. It was this little slice of the Doctor Who universe, though. So you got to see another corner of the Doctor universe without the Doctor. It's like someone slipped in Dirty Harry and Star Wars into the Doctor Who <laughs> universe, and everyone freaking loved it. I mean, it, it, he uh, again, he appeared in 1980 in the comic strip, right? It was in Doctor Who number 17, when he, or Doctor Who Weekly number 17. And then he appeared on and off throughout that year. It was only about 40 pages if you put it all together, and that was it. It was a one-year phenomenon, 1980, and it was over. But – People loved it so much. I mean, again, it's you know explosions, people dying, all kinds of stuff, and so it kept coming back. So here we go. So 1980, right? And I I fell in love with it myself when I read it in the backups here of, of Doctor Who. I think I think colorizing them and putting it here in these reprints helped keep that memory alive. Because then nine years later, in 1989, he comes back in Doctor Who magazine and some of the comic strips, and that time he actually teams up with the current Doctor, which was uh, Sylvester McCoy. Outside of the comics in 1990, and this is mind-boggling, Doctor Who Magazine actually released a, a, a 
piece of music, a record to go with Absalom Dak. It was on what's called a flexi disc. I don't know if you remember this. Back in the day, magazines, oh, wow. every once in a while would release a record. It would be like square plastic and you could put it on your uh, turntable like a 45. Do you remember these things at all? Or you get them on the, the inside of your cereal box. Yes. Okay. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So they released it. You can find it, guys. Go out there and Google the, the themed Absalom Dak Dalek Killer. It's like three minutes long. It's very strange. <laughs> but anyway, they got a lot of mileage out of that. Uh, they even printed a T-shirt about the same time with a Steve Dillon Art of Absalom Dak. Uh, and the only reason I know this is because I own it and I'm wearing it right now. This shirt is 30 years old. It's barely holding together, but I still keep it to wear like a pajama shirt because I love it so much. So and then it, it keeps going. Then outside of comics, he appears in a, in one of the books. You remember the the Virgin New Adventures books? He's featured very heavily in one of those in 1993. He comes back in the comic strips every so often, uh, and his fan base just kept the idea of him alive. Well, then in uh, 20 years later, and you reminded me of this, sir. I actually forgot about this. In 2015, he became a reoccurring character in the Titan Doctor Who comics with the Eleventh Doctor. He's in the TARDIS, right? Yeah, as, as part of this. February event. I've been reading a ton of, you said, the Titan Doctor yep. Who titles for the last few years and was surprised to see this guy show up in an issue of the 11th Doctor. And boy, is he mad at the Doctor. Yeah. Because of the time war and killing all those Daleks. That was supposed <laughs> right. to be this guy's job. And he ain't <laughs> happy about it. As you said, his grasp on, you know, like sanity was a little tenuous anyway. Like everyone loves Absalom Dak. But they forget that before his first story, he killed 23 people. He's a bad, bad dude. The doctor should not be hanging out with him. And one of the tropes, and I should have mentioned this earlier, of the character was his his, his lady love. She dies. In fact, in this story that's reprinted here. And that pretty much drives every single Absalom Dak story after that. Yeah, He's I actually, actually saw that, that that was referenced again in, in the one I mm-hmm. just, just read today. So uh, I don't want to spoil it for you, but yeah, it, it that continues to play a role in the Eleven Doctor story until he comes to terms with a lot of that. Uh, he travels around with her body in this stasis capsule, hoping that someone can save her from the brink of death. And, and those Absalom Dak stories continue throughout the day. They're, again, adventuring the Doctor Who universe without the Doctor most of the time. You get uh, Ice Warriors, you get Draconians, all this stuff. So uh, it really fits in with the Doctor universe. So here, here's what I'm – the coolest thing that's probably happened was in 2014, Absalom Dak actually got mentioned on the TV show on the actual Doctor Who TV show. That's never happened before. He's the first comic book character, or first comic created character to get acknowledged in the actual show. It was a Peter Capaldi episode called Time Heist, where they're in the bank vault. Yeah. There's a computer screen displaying all these different different worst criminals in history. A drawing of Absalom Dak is one of them, which is like, oh my God, all the nerds, like we all, we lost our mind. We're like, oh my God. So excited about that. So... The four-page story that's in here is great, but it's more the, the popularity and the ongoing legacy, which is sort of what's amazing about this. Our original plan was not to cover these four pages because, well, they really aren't about Doctor Who and who's this guy anyway, and you said no. Let's not say our original plan. That would be because your original, original plan, plan, sir. Yeah, <laughs> your original plan. So, oh, good stuff. So I, I, there was a couple more things I want to mention about the, the previous stories we read, which was um, I mentioned the season 17 stuff that these stories with Sharon, where she says goodbye, are actually the last stories they did that would fit within the season 17 setting, because the next issue or the next strip, either one way you want to look at it, begins the season 18 stuff, which which really it, with Tom Baker, for the most part, seasons don't really matter other than the companion. But that one matters because it, I, um, that's Tom Baker's last season. That's when he starts wearing the whole red costume. 
even even in black and white, that was plainly obvious that the costume changed. So this was the last one of that season 17 adventures, which is kind of cool. Did they stick with the Tom Baker version throughout all of this? Did they transition? And that's one thing Doctor Magazine's always been about is the comic strip is always the current Doctor. The only time this deviated was when when the show was on a, uh, I guess you could call it hiatus or you can call it canceled, really, (laughs) from 89 to 96. Sometimes they would dip around and do different Doctors until Paul McGann came along and then they would – from 96 forward, it was, again, the current Doctor was always the, the, the lead of the story. So, but yeah, so these reprints, somewhere around issue 15, I want to say, uh, Peter Davison stuff takes over, which is still drawn by Dave Gibbons in, initially, oh, wow. which is absolutely great. Peter Davison's first story is, is regarded as really, really exceptional from the comic strip point of view. So, uh, I mean, it all comes down to this. Was this issue worth one bright, shiny quarter? You know, for me, it was worth uh, seven shiny quarters. Wait, uh, four, five, six, six shiny quarters. <laughs> Plus. Yeah, so yeah, the dollar fifty, then the IDW reprint, which was probably $3.95. Then there's the collected edition. And oh, yeah. Oh, oof. And then I bought the Absalom DAC collections twice. So of yeah. Of course you did. Yeah, well, that's okay. <laughs> I agree. We've got two full stories, good sci-fi, good art, good mechanical dog. All in all, that's good enough. Now, I do not see these in the quarter bins. Uh, This is one of three that M picked up that one time at Mm -hmm. that one sale. I think it's the only time I've ever seen these Marvel Doctor Whos cheap. So they are definitely worth it. I would definitely recommend you snag these. I mean, actually, the interesting thing is this was the first comic book ever called Doctor Who. Americans got the first Doctor Who comic book. Actually, we beat that. We beat England to the punch twice because not, not only did we get this comic book, then IDW started pub- publishing the license. You know, in the 2000s, England still didn't have a Doctor Who comic book at that point. It wasn't until Titan right. came around that uh, England got got their own Doctor Who comic books. I've enjoyed the Titan run. Oh, they're exceptional. They've they're done really, a really good job. They really have. I was very hesitant at first because I was a big fan of the IDW stuff. So I sat there, you know, with my arms crossed in the corner. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I like this. And uh, then I started reading them. I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's so good. Whereas everyone else has always published just one comic book. Titan said, no, no, no. We're going to do one. We can do all of them. Exactly. Almost. almost. Exactly. (laughs) Now, they've scaled back. I mean, they're down to what? One monthly title, I think now. It's it's been it's been a golden age for Doctor Who comic books. So the verdict on Doctor Who, number eight, it's good enough science fiction with enough Doctor Who-specific things thrown in, including canine, a big scarf, and a shout-out to Jelly Babies. So yes, a definite quarter bin deal. Absolutely. Shag, so good to talk to you about this. It turns out you are not nearly as hard to podcast with as David S. Gutierrez always says in our private chat sessions. Yeah, you see how the Ultraverse Network worked out, right? <laughs> There's still litigation, which I can't discuss too much Ooh. about. So, you know, tell us where we can find you online. I mean, obviously not talking about your favorite thing ever, Doctor Who, but maybe talking about your favorite thing ever, Firestorm, or your favorite thing ever, the Justice League International, or any of your other absolute favorite things. 
why you'd want to listen to me after hearing this crazy thing, I don't know. But you can find me over at the Fire and Water Podcast Network uh, there with uh, an amazing, amazing collection of podcasters who uh, I've just been fortunate enough to fall into. And we, we uh, you've mentioned a lot of the characters we podcast about and do a lot of other stuff over there, and that's where most of our ramblings are. And sooner or later, we will have a Doctor Who show. But all of us are so committed with other things, none of us feel like we could do it justice right now. Gotcha. Okay. So it's, oh, it's definitely going to happen. It's just... I'd really like to finish the JLI show first because that takes so much of my time. I'm sure there's JLIs in the quarter bin. I'm just saying. Hope oh, you bet. You bet. <laughs> I, I smell a crossover. <laughs> just waiting on you, buddy. I invited you. You turned me down. I don't remember it that way, but okay. I'll, I'll look. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. It really is an honor to be here. I love this show so much. And it's such a great concept. You're such a wonderful podcaster. And uh, I just appreciate the opportunity to be here. Despite the mean things you say about me sometimes, I am looking forward to seeing you at Gallifrey One. I was going to say, the nice thing about this podcast is it's sort of like an artifact. This might be an artifact of uh, our last conversations we ever have, because after spending an entire weekend together, I think that's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. I think it's going to be over. Come on, of all the people I'd like to spend Valentine's Day with, you, you're the top of my list. Aww. Which is is pretty sad. Yeah, my wife keeps mentioning. Uh, like, so you're leaving on Valentine's Day? I'm clarify. like, what day is the flight? It's the 14th. Is that what yeah. you said? Is that yeah. What you said? Yeah. She said that's my present to her is leaving her alone. <laughs> Much like most comic book nerds, spouses yeah, would probably say. <laughs> well, that wraps up our coverage of Doctor Who number eight, bringing Quarterman Podcast 131 to a close and next time we'll be jumping up into the 2010s to talk about one of the more modern books we've covered here in a long time not counting free comic book day we'll be looking at all new x-men number 32 from marvel comics cover dated november 2014 if you have any questions or comments about this issue or the episode my choice in guests or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next time, I'm Professor Allen, and he's... The Irredeemable Shag. And I'll see you in the Quarter Bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. I'm not done, Alan. I'm not sure where you're going. I've got like another page of notes here, sir. Um, what? After show clip. All right, good. <laughs> We've got to talk about the fact that Doctor Who was published by Marvel Comics. That's a thing. They were aggressive about picking up any sci-fi license they could. Well, they really After were. Star Wars and John Carter and he's listing Man from Atlantis for crying out loud. So I guess well, Doctor Who at some point would have to fall onto their radar. Well, the story is, of course, that, you know, Star Wars saved the company.
you know that yeah. they, that's that's a famous story. Yeah, in their case, what happened was, um, you know, they, there was an arm of Marvel over in the UK called Marvel UK, and in 1979, they kind of took control of the Doctor Who license from this other company called Polystyle. Now, they've been doing Doctor Who strips since the 60s, but they weren't very well regarded. Uh, and the, some of the Dalek ones were, but for the most part, Doctor Who strips in the old days were just kind of fluff. They weren't really very well regarded. So they, so they get the license and they start this whole Doctor Who Weekly thing, which becomes Doctor Who magazine, which still is being published yes. today. Excellent magazine, by the way. So when Marvel UK gets the license, they immediately change the whole style of the strip. They hire a bunch of young talent in there. You get names like and people you probably never heard of, like Dave Gibbons, uh, Pat Mills, John <laughs> Wagner, Steve Moore, Steve Dillon, Alan Moore, just complete nobodies, right? Guys that you never went anywhere. So they get all this new talent in here. Interesting thing I didn't know until I was doing research for this is that at the same time, while they were producing Doctor Who strips, and so they were also stealing American comic books for Doctor Who Weekly, where what they would actually do is they basically reprint old Marvel monster sci-fi tales in the Doctor Who magazine, and they draw a panel or two on the front end of like Tom right. Baker doing interstitial descriptions. I remember that one time. Exactly. Yeah. So they weren't even Doctor Who stories, not even in the Who universe, but they, you know, they would squeeze them in there. So in Doctor Who magazine or weekly, you get stuff from like Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko or Stan oh, Lee. Wow, so, right. so Doctor Who comics come to the United States. That's what we're talking about here, right? So the first appearance of Doctor Who in an American comic, I mentioned it before, is Marvel premiere. So they did issue 57 through 60. It was in 1980. It was basically a test run to see if it'd work because Marvel premiere was like this anthology book where they would rotate ideas to see what it would take. And Doctor Who must not have taken because that was 1980, and his ongoing didn't start till 1984. Anyway, so the 1984 strip comes out. It's called Doctor Who. It's the first one that you called Doctor Who. It ran for 23 issues, and uh, that was pretty exciting. Then um, here's where it gets fun, because, you know, it's a Marvel comic, right? Well, years later, in one of the strips, the seventh Doctor meets a Marvel UK character called Death's Head. I don't know if you remember Death's Head. Right. He's all over the quarter bin, so I'm sure you've run across yes. him. Oh, yes. Uh, so later on, Death's Head obviously goes into interact with the rest of the Marvel Universe. So does that make Doctor Who in the Marvel 616 universe? Could he team up with Wolverine? Could he team up with, oh, I don't know, Alpha Flight? Or maybe even oh, the Ultraverse? Here, I know you love the business side of things, so I'll give you a little background here. So in 1995, uh, Marvel UK was – they were on the skids. They were in bad shape. They needed cash. So they were bought by Panini Comics who was a European publisher. So Marvel UK was publishing new Marvel comics, but Panini had the rights to reprint Marvel comics in See, Europe. Because when I poke around things like Comic Book DB and things yep. like that, Panini Press reprints show up. And exactly. I always wondered, what the heck is that? Well, thank it, you. Yep. I've learned something. <laughs> so Panini buys Marvel UK. In a, in a sense, Marvel UK still kind of exists with its licenses, but it's just owned by Panini now, who also apparently owns Marvel Europe, which is, I guess is another thing. And uh, so Panini still publishes Doctor Who magazine to this day, and they reprint collections of these comic strips, which are just gorgeous. If you, I highly recommend these reprint books. They're they're a little bigger than a, a comic book size. They're gorgeous, like a, you put them on your bookshelf, you know, and, and they're Big, thick, like 200-page collections of strips, whether it be the Paul McGann strips or the Sylvester McCoy strips or, or the Tom Baker ones, whatever. They're absolutely beautiful and well worth your – well worth the expense. I know you it's know, a big info dump, which I know I'm well – I'm known for doing on your show. Absalom Dock. Absalom Dak, but thank you. That's what the magic of editing is for. You could take that one out right there, buddy. <laughs>